We are going to find out if the Israelites get out of Egypt. But just before we do that, um, if you happen to get an email from me that looks a little suspicious, and I'm running into a meeting or something, and you need to hit reply really quickly or something, do not. That is not from me. I know a number of people have said I get uh, spammed, and because our email and some information is on the website, obviously they use that to do some. Uh, so if you're in doubt at all, you know, pick up the phone and give me a call. Uh, uh, some of you are hoping to hear an update from Lois. I know Lois has been emailing us some of the update from her ministry trip uh, to India. She is still recovering, probably watching us online, but when she is better, we are going to have her uh, share with us in person on, on a Sunday morning. So just want to let you know about that. Did you have a memorable Christmas break? Yes, that's good. Hopefully you had a Christmas break. I guess not everybody did. But I was thinking back to one of my, I think my most memorable Christmas break ever. It was when I was in high school, and our youth group went uh, to a Canada-wide youth retreat in Banff, Alberta. Now, I can tell you as a, as a prairie boy, you know, I was looking forward to seeing and being on real mountains for the first time in my life. <laughs> now, the, uh, and, uh, the youth retreat included two and a half days of skiing, and, uh, and the map that you will see on the overhead in a moment, I think. There we go. I stuck to the yellow areas, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Having never been on a real mountain before, stuck to the uh, yellow areas. But then... Along the day, near the end of the day, somebody told me that, uh, that there was something called the Great Divide. The Great Divide is basically, if the rain falls on this side of it, it goes all the way, you know, back to the prairies, actually all the way back to Manitoba. And if it falls on the other side, it goes all the way to the BC coast. And I thought, uh, on the second day, I thought, oh man, I would love to go across the Great Divide. But there was one problem. You see, the only run on there was a black diamond. <laughs> but I had to see it, and I decided, you know, I'm going to go for it. And the view from the chairlift going up was absolutely amazing. <laughs> but there was a different feeling, and you probably know it, that gripped me when I got off the chairlift, and I looked down. Oh, my I was looking to see if there was a chairlift that I could take down instead, and there wasn't. So I quickly decided on a survival strategy, go back and forth as much as I could, and whenever I started to gain speed, just crash. Because <laughs> it's better doing it on lower speeds. I did end up making it down in, in one piece, uh, but that was not very wise. Well, the beginning of Israel's first ever trip out of Egypt must have been truly amazing. As you may recall, as I'm sure they did, that early on their initial hopes of deliverance were quickly and brutally stamped out by Pharaoh. The Israelites were ready to give up and resign themselves to a life of slavery and oppression. But God had promised to deliver them. And following the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn in Egypt, 
Pharaoh finally agreed to let the Israelites go. Indeed, we are told in Exodus chapter 12, verse 33, that the Egyptians urged the people, the Israelites, to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we'll all die. And so the Israelites left in a big hurry with articles of silver and gold and clothing that they asked for and were willingly given by the Egyptians. Now, let us pick up the story where we left off back in November, Exodus 13. We're going to be beginning at verse 13. 17, sorry, Exodus 13, chapter 13. We're going to begin, to begin at verse 17. And right to the end of chapter 14. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. And the Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. And after leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hirioth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zaphon. Pharaoh will think, The Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hirioth, opposite Baal-Zaphon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on the dry ground. 
I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Quite a picture, isn't it? Well, if you have been with us in this journey through Exodus, you may be relieved indeed that we have come to the point where the Israelites finally leave Egypt. Clearly, no human force could bend the, the proud king of the proudest kingdom to change his oppressive ways, but under the power of the Lord's hand, And his ten plagues, literally, you may recall, strikes or blows. Pharaoh was brought to the point where he not only permitted the release of the Israelites, but actively sent. The the verb in Hebrew has a sense even of driven, driving them out, just as God promised that he would. The theme of promise and fulfillment is important in this story And, of course, in our own personal stories. The note in chapter 13, verse 18, that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, underlines the point. By faith, the writer to Hebrews says, by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Take those with you. And he made his brothers promise to take his bones with them to the promised land or the next generation. Despite being given, and Joseph was given the honor of being 
uh, embalmed and and a great royal funeral in Egypt. And yet, Joseph was making it clear that his primary identity was not as an Egyptian, but as a citizen, a servant of God in his kingdom. What a testimony that must have been. You know, there on Joseph's tombstone, written something to the effect, take me with you when God takes us home. (laughs) Right? My citizenship is in God's kingdom. Well, another notable feature and theme in this story is Israel's state-of-the-art GPS, God positioning system, right? By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and a pillar of fire to give them light. Why? Why? It says so that they could travel by day or night. Very unique in those days. His guidance was visible and continual. And yet to many, the route that God was taking them out of Egypt and to the promised land must have seemed confusing, even misguided. After all, as we are told in in chapter 13, verse 17, God did not lead them on the main road along the coast through the Philistine territory. Uh, Just on the map, you'll see that was shorter. It's called the way of the Philistines. Uh, The Philistines were sea peoples. It was a very, about 11-day journey at the most. They could have been there, you know, less than two weeks. Uh, As it is, it will take them at least a year to get there. God had several reasons for not taking them on that, uh, you know, northeastern route, but on the southeastern one instead. And one of those reasons is stated in 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 verse 17. And other reasons will be given when the story is told in, in more detail in chapter 14. But early on, we are told that God knew and was sensitive to their lack of experience and maturity. So although verse 18 says that the Israelites went out of Egypt ready for battle, or it could be in military formation, and in healing, chapter 4, you know, we're probably singing, na, 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 you know, a victory chant of some sort. But God knew that if they actually faced warfare at this point, they would probably change their minds and return to Egypt. Kind of like me standing on the top of the black diamond run, looking for a chairlift that would take me down, you know? God's concern for their spiritual immaturity, well, it proved to be true in chapter 14 when the Egyptian army does come over the horizon the Israelites totally freak out. They complain to Moses that they would have been better off in Egypt serving the old master Pharaoh rather than their new master God, who didn't, by the way, didn't seem to know what he was doing. The irony, of course, is that the only one in the story who really does know what he is doing is God. I like what uh, Pastor Tim Chester, uh, he puts it. He says, sometimes the long way around is the best way. Sometimes what seems to be a hard road is God's way of developing our faith. Many of us, maybe all of us, probably have at least one God story. Story of God taking us on a longer, indirect route. Rather than the one that seemed shorter and straightforward. My journey to becoming a pastor, you know, that wasn't even on my radar screen, for example. 
And uh, I spent years working as a general contractor, building schools and homes. Experiences that came in kind of handy when we had the flooding last week, you know? Interesting. Now, as readers, we are given several reasons into God's purpose for taking the longer route through the wilderness. Given their miraculous departure, you know, after the ten plagues, the last thing they expected was to find themselves yet once again between a rock and a hard place, with Pharaoh and his best troops breathing down their necks. Sometimes it's like that for us. We maybe come to faith in Christ and we think it's just going to be clear sailing from now on. What the people did not realize, and as we often do not, is that their unexpected route through the wilderness, unexpected, I mean, from a human point of view, not from God's point of view, it's all part of God's uh, larger and long-term plans for them and actually for those around them as well. See, because there's two main reasons. One is God is doing this for their good, for the good of Israel, preventing them from getting discouraged and, and going back to their old way of life and oppression. And God knows they will need mentoring and discipleship, and they need to grow in their faith. And he will camp out with them at Mount Sinai. He will teach them his ways. Now, clearly at this point, Israel had no military experience. But the bigger problem was that they were not spiritually prepared for the journey ahead of them. Their success would depend not primarily, you know, on their own, you know, what they could learn and their abilities. It was totally dependent on their ability to trust and obey God wholeheartedly rather than trust in their own opinion and know-how. As of Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 um, you know, do not trust, uh, oh, no, it's escaped me for a moment. There we go. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Yes, in all your ways acknowledge him or make him known, and he will direct your paths. Now, if you forgot that, memorize it. It's a great verse. <laughs> You see, they needed to learn that God always has a plan and purpose. Where he guides, he also provides. Even miracles when needed. Their job at this stage in their spiritual development was to learn to fully trust the Lord as well as their God-given leader, Moses. Paul will reflect in, in 1 Corinthians 10. He will reflect on this story and its implications and applications for the believers in his day and for us. And there's a famous verse that will come up where he says, No temptation has seized you or gripped you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will make a way of escape. That is a summary of what God is doing in this story. That's what Paul, Paul, that's Paul's commentary on this story. You see, God will be taking them to spiritual boot camp in the wilderness. There's a book uh, Daniel Erlander wrote, written called uh, Manna and Mercy. And in this book, he basically gives a lot of cartoon-like pictures, but it's a summary story of the Bible. And I love that section when he gets to the wilderness school. 
You see Egypt there on the one hand in the promised land, and they are needing to learn to live as free people. And God will be teaching them faith lessons that will be foundational for their lives. Well, the second reason God does this is not only for their own good, but also for the good of others. God's glory was being put on display so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Not only those who are going to die, but the other ones who will hear about it and the peoples around. And if you remember, uh, I think back in uh, about a month ago, I, uh, I had a little clip or picture from The Incredibles, the inc- original Incredibles movie. You know, the little kid on the tricycle, and he sees Mr. And he discovers that his neighbor is not only quite large, he is incredible. He can pick up his car, you know, and put it back down. And he's, he's one, he is learning about that he has a superhero living next to him. Well, in this case, God is the superhero. God's reputation is at stake. And Pharaoh is an illustration of life without God at the center. Live just for himself, and everybody else are his minions. And a whole empire is being created with him at the top. God does not operate like that. God is acting so that the world may know, just as Jesus would act and do signs and wonders so that the world would know what God is really like. How God, goes about do, how God goes about doing this is not the way the Israelites or the Egyptians expected. In fact, a key factor in God's strategy is that, that Pharaoh will think he will change his mind. And true to form, Pharaoh falls for the trap, letting his greed that has driven his life and his pride get the best of him. And he pursues the Israelites with 600 of his best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them all. I don't know if you noticed, but the, the details of Pharaoh's force are repeated no less than six times in this chapter. It is underlying the magnitude of Pharaoh's efforts. This is a formidable force, and the people on foot, the Israelites, would have no chance, humanly speaking. Pharaoh thinks that what he said and did before, when he drove them out, that was utter folly. He might have said, you know, that was a moment of temporary insanity. What was I thinking? When really, it was actually a moment of temporary sanity. It really was. And it was wisdom. And yet his persistent pride and hard-heartedness will ultimately cost him and those who follow after them and go in hot pursuit of the Israelites. And in verses 10 to 12 of chapter 4, we see how things, how they look from the perspective then of the Israelites. What a contrast between how boldly they were marching out in verse 8 and how terrified and dismayed they are when the Egyptian army is marching out after them. And isn't that often our reaction to opposition, to trouble, to bad news? If we walk by sight rather than by faith, we will misread the situation we are in and flee when we should be standing firm to get a front row, to keep our front row seat on what God is going to do next. God instructs Moses to tell the people not to panic, but to stand firm. And you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring today. See, unless we are listening to the Lord 
following him, we will not know how we should be responding at any given moment. At home, at work, at school. See, because in verses 13 to 14, God's instruction is stand firm. You need only to be still. The Lord is going to fight for you. But then, a couple verses later, he says to Moses, tell the people to move on. And Moses, raise your staff. And the pillar of cloud that guided them, it went from in front of them and it, and it moved around behind them. And they discovered God's guiding presence was also his protective presence. It's multifaceted. Well, and, and they also learned in the next scene that God is able to make a way where there seems to be no way. It's a very important lesson. They had learned from all through all the plagues that God is greater than the gods of Egypt. He's greater because he is actually the God of creation, of life and death. But here, he will also be the God over the sea. Now to most, almost virtually all of the ancient peoples, the sea was terrifying. It was a place of death and chaos and power. And whoever could control that, that was the real God. It's similar in the New Testament when the disciples are in the midst of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And we would say all hell breaks loose. It is just these experienced fishermen are terrified. And then Jesus will speak to the storm, be still. And it will still, and they will in the one another in Luke chapter 8. Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. You see, creation, they are being taught, is at the Lord's beck and call. This is creation language that is being used. That language of separating light and darkness. It's light on one side and dark on the other. It's light for the Israelites and dark for the other. Who can do that? The creator God. Also, the creation language. He's separating the waters, and dry land appears. Who does that? The Creator God. It's Genesis language. They're being taught the Creator God, and they will get more lessons on this in their wilderness school and down by Mount Sinai, but they are being taught. And then what does God do? Then He will allow those barriers that He put in place to separate this. He will say, okay, I'm going to take those back, and it's just going to return to chaos, just like it did during the Noah's flood. Noah's flood was basically, you want me to, you know, to leave you alone to your own ways? Well, then that will require me to take what I have done, the good things that I have set in place so that life can be, and it will just return to chaos. And only God can get the credit for this. And he does, both from the Egyptians. The Egyptians, in verse 25, the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. They see it. They get the point. And the Israelites... With their front row seat, they thought it was a front row seat to death. It's the front row seat to the most amazing thing you'd ever see. Verse 30 and 31. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. It says when they saw that front row seat to that. When they saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses his servant. I don't think they ever forgot that scene. They had known 
what those taskmasters had done, how they had ruled over their lives. And God needed, knew that they needed a total break from that. They needed total freedom. Well, faith lessons. I think there's at least three. There's probably more, but three that I want to highlight. The first is that God's way is the best way. Not necessarily the easiest way, not the shortest way, or the most sensible way, humanly speaking. But time and time again, as we see here, God's way proves to be the best way of all. They would not have to live wondering if the Egyptians were going to come back after them. The shorter route, we know from uh, archaeology and stuff, there were military fortresses set up all the way along that shorter route. God knew they're not going to handle that. And he was going to give a lesson. God's way is the best way. And because we cannot see comprehensively, we need to believe and trust in the only one who can. It's like when we have young kids, you know, can they see the perspective even that we as parents have? You know, someday you'll know this is going to be good for you. And they're thinking, yeah, right. Oh, yeah. We, we, we're like that as adults, right? But God's way is the best way. A second faith lesson, God can make a way. God can make a way where there seems to be no possible way. God can make a way. And I was reminded of this so powerfully yesterday. Uh, yesterday morning, I got up at 8 o'clock to watch a live stream of my Aunt Hilda's uh, funeral. She, passed, she was almost 93. She just passed away back in December uh, in Ontario. And um, as I was watching the live stream, there were two stories. One, her daughter, Heather, my cousin, recalled how her mom had been near death from cancer in 1986. They were already making plans for her funeral and then suddenly, I mean, they'd been praying for her, but suddenly she began to recover and to get better. And then the doctors tested her again, and there was no cancer. And she went on to live decades, lived to be 92 and a half. God made a way where there did not seem to be a way. But the other story, see, my Aunt Hilda was also predeceased by her daughter Sharon, my cousin, who died of cancer in 2007. I know that one well because uh, my cousin Sharon needed a stem cell donor. Her siblings weren't a match, so we went to my family, and I was the perfect match. And so I remember going in 2006, and while she was going through cancer treatments to kill all of her immune system, they were boosting mine so that they could transfer the stem cells. And initially, it looked really good. She was recovering way above schedule. And she was able to, her oldest uh, son, uh, she was able to, uh, later in, in June, she was able to see him graduate, her first son graduate. And yet shortly after that, the cancer returned with a vengeance. And almost a year later, after the stem cell transplant, she died. Leaving, you know, her three kids and her husband behind. But, uh, but you see, her kids were strong in their faith. And Heather said they all married godly women. 
They married godly, godly women and have begun families of their, of their own. And Phil, Sharon's husband, he went on to remarry a godly woman who has uh, made the home for the kids and, and grandkids truly a home of, of laughter and, and joy again. And my cousin, Heather said, what was and is difficult has become beautiful once again. Didn't know how they were going to make it through that. How can that kind of loss and brokenness, but what was and is difficult has become beautiful once again. God can make a way where there seems to be no way. And thirdly, following God requires a life of faith. Not just a momentary faith. Beginning the life of faith and following begins, I mean, the life of uh, being a Christian begins with faith. It is by faith you have been saved, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Trust, that's how it starts. But we need to also be entrusting our lives into God's hands day by day. I mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul refers to the uh, Israelites, he has commentary on this story of the crossing of the Red Sea, and, and he will say, oh, that was their Israel's baptism. When you think about it, they died to the old master and the old way of life. They were alive to the new master and a new way of life, a new life in a new land, because Christ is our promised land. And the language of in Christ in the New Testament, you know, is the fulfillment of in the promised land in the old and for the Israelites, Paul will say, it was a great start. But Paul reflects also on this story especially, and he includes with it a warning. Because he said, although they all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses, in that case, into the cloud and into the sea, they failed to follow the Lord and his ways. And many of them died in the desert. Wasted lives. And he said, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination, the fulfillment of the ages has come. And so, this is also a faith lesson that, with a warning, right? An encouragement to keep following God. I want to invite the worship team to come up, and as they're coming, let's pray. O oh, Creator, God, You who are awesome in power and glory, and yet, Lord, we thank You that You're the God who, who camped out among the Israelites. You lived with them day and night that they would know about You firsthand, what You're really like, that they would know that You are a God who cares about them, a God who also cared about all the peoples around them, that You wanted all all people to know that you are the Lord. And to not be stubborn like Pharaoh, but to bend their will to the much better way, to surrender their lives to you. And Lord, we want to surrender our lives to you, maybe for the first time for some, or to recommit ourselves anew, Lord, into your hands. Lord, we want to follow your leadership, your guidance. Lord, just as Yosef talked about last week, being devoted to the apostles' teaching. 
Lord, we want to follow you in your ways. For your glory, for our good and the good of all of those around us. Amen. Thank you, Heather and worship team, for leading us. Certain images come to mind when you're singing that song. I remember years ago, I hadn't pastored that long, but a, a young fellow who had come to faith, Ken, and during that song, he was standing near a front row and he stood up on a chair. As if uh, he just needed to live out what this reality was that uh, had taken place in his life. Uh, just a, a reminder for small group leaders, we have a meeting uh, after following the service in the conference room. Uh, you can pick up your coffee and snack there and then, uh, and then head into there. And also, if you would like prayer, we have some people from prayer team that will be up available on your right-hand side on my left, uh, available to pray with you. And can I encourage you, if you have a need in your life, absolutely pray. But if maybe... Something was also brought to mind, an answer to prayer from the past. Go and say, I just want to praise God. I want to pray together. Thank you, God, and to do that as well. And it's great to see Craig and Leah Graham here, former part of the congregation, still in our hearts, uh, moved into the interior, but it's great to have you with us this morning as well. I want to send you uh, off with, uh, as we were singing, you know, the hope May the God of hope, uh, Paul says in, in Romans 15, verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.